Shot Tower, the Real NBA Fantasy NBA Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and me, Michael Kimball. Here we are in week 13 in the East. We have the Bucks way out in front, and then a clump of teams, Miami, Boston, Toronto, Indy, and Philly. In the West, it's the Lakers, and then a bunch of other teams that we don't need to talk about right now because there's a fun race for the eighth seed. Memphis is 8-2 and two over their last 10. New Orleans is 7-3 and three over their last 10. New Orleans also has the easiest schedule for the rest of the season. Um, Want to call out that last week, or the last recording, uh, anyway, um, Kyle called out New Orleans as um, a possibility for that eighth seed, and it was my prediction in the previews. So um, I'm really liking that. They get Zion back, I think, on the 22nd. Um, Any thoughts on those uh, races there? Yeah, Derek Favors got injured again, which I think he, he seemed to, his coming back at least coincided with the you know run of good play that they had yeah, and then definitely. they did they did lose again when he went back out so it does seem that they need a stronger you know um center presence um than right. jackson hayes is giving them um and zion should be able to do a lot coming back into that mix definitely and favors is back soon either next game or two games is the prediction so um they set up for a really nice run there as they are getting healthy again and then memphis i mean ja and and um uh, jackson jr have just been incredible um they they look like a tandem of the future that we haven't seen in quite a while yeah i mean i think since we're patting ourselves on the back, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think uh, Derek Favors, I was sort of not a huge fan of Derek Favors going into the season just because of his injury history. There was a trade in our league um, of Derek Favors, and I don't remember who he was traded for, but I was kind of like, ugh, uh, you know, I wouldn't. It was a young big who got one of the big suspensions, wasn't it? Um, was it, oh yeah, it was Aiton. Was it, that was the Aiton deal? They might've been that one, yeah. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I wouldn't be interested in that deal just because of Derek Favors' injury history, his age, um, and, you know, just lack of ceiling, I guess. Uh, but I mean, when he plays, the Pelicans' defense is, like, a lot better, and they have a much better chance of winning games. Uh, this win streak also coincided with Lonzo Ball having, like, maybe the best four-game stretch of his career. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think the Pelicans are still exciting and, um, Zion's about to come back on the 22nd, I believe at home against the Spurs. So, um, yeah, they, they could get that a seed. It's, it's tough. It's going to be a battle between them, uh, and the Spurs and the Grizzlies and the trailblazers are right there still also. Um, the the Suns have, um, uh, wishes as well. (laughs) Yeah. Wishes. That's a good (laughs) They're trying, they're trying. Yeah. With the Spurs coming back on the way they have recently, do you really think these other teams are going to be able to catch up? I mean, as as this, you know, I guess actually Memphis has, well, has I mean, Memphis jumped, is jumped already the eighth seed, I think. Right. Yeah, um, they are. Yeah. But they have the Spurs have turned it around pretty well. I mean, I guess they're five and five in their last ten, but they are overall they're they're 
clicking better as a team. They're moving LaMarcus Aldridge behind the three-point line, which has opened up some things for them. Um, Of course, DeMar DeRozan had that just monstrous dunk against his former team in Toronto, which... um, Little payback. Yeah, I think the best tweet I said about it was uh, that he, with that dunk alone, put himself back into the second favorite player of of Raptors fans ever. I'm assuming that's behind (laughs) Kyle Lowry with Vince Carter as number three. (laughs) It's nice that Kyle was able to pass Vince uh, after all these years. Uh, It took a while. I don't know if it would have happened without the championship last year. No, probably not. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It'd still be Vince. So, um, all right, let's move on to the trade market. It's starting to, uh, um, preheat, let's say (laughs) in the slowest of ways, there's been tons of talk, but we have our second, uh, real trade, Jeff Teague and Travion Graham to the Hawks with Alan Crabb going back to the Timberwolves. Hopefully he takes their, his three point shooting there because the Minnesota needs it. Um, Kind of a boring trade. Any thoughts? Teague goes uh, back to the team that drafted him. Um, you know, he had probably the best part of his career there. And yeah. uh, he definitely had the best part of his career there. Um, he'll be in a very different role, obviously, backing up Trey Young. Um, I have him on one of my fantasy teams. I'm kind of on the lookout to see what's going to happen. But I feel like he'll get pretty, he'll get pretty, you know, just I think he'll- He'll get Standard the minutes, minutes he's getting here. already, yeah. isn't he? And it will provide a little stability in that lineup at the one position that they haven't had when um, when Trey Young goes out. Yeah, their offensive rating between when Trey Young is on the court and when he's off is was incredibly stark. I, I think the number was like 109 when he's on the court and 91 points per possession when he's off. Yeah, it's Once like... It's like a Jordan era offense when he's off the floor. It's, it's wild. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think this is interesting. I think Teague will get plenty of playing time uh, there. They don't really have a real backup point guard. They were using Evan Turner as their backup point guard. Um, and he's been injured for much of the season. So I think he'll get plenty of playing time. Um, and what's interesting to me is that all the, all the contracts in this deal were expiring um, every single yep. one of them, all three of them. So it seems like it could be for both teams. There could be further moves to add on to this deal or related to this deal. Yeah. Um, I'm the trade I think, exceptions that were generated could be part of it. Yeah. I think the speculation is that for Minnesota, this is like in play uh, for them to make another move potentially for D'Angelo Russell. Um, and for the Hawks, for the Hawks, I think the deal on its face makes the most sense because Teague is good. He's an upgrade over what they had currently. He's not massively, he's not overpaid necessarily. Um, and you know, maybe if the league has soured on his abilities enough, they can get him at a cheaper price and they can just have a solid, uh, backup point guard for the next couple years. Um, yeah. and they can also aggregate, uh, both players in another trade. So like, Let's say they wanted to make the bad decision of uh, trading for Andre Drummond. They could do that potentially using these pieces. So, do you know Teague went to school in North Carolina um, and at Wake Forest, and uh, he played for the Hawks for a long time. I wonder if there was any kind of indication to the Hawks that they thought that he might be pretty happy moving back to that part of the country. 
Yeah, I mean that's that's a, that's a complete possibility. Like I feel like with all these guys who have uh, player options or are you know unrestricted free agents, you kind of have to like consider how likely they are to re-sign with your team. You know, it's the same thing with Andre Drummond, right? Even if the Hawks traded for him this season, they'd have to get some sort of wink, wink, nod agreement that he'd stick around in the future. Otherwise, he could just leave in free agency. Right, and there's been the discussion that if Atlanta was uh, willing to offer anything close to a first-round pick, that the deal would have already been done, but that doesn't seem uh, likely to happen, at least at this point. That may change as we near the deadline, but um, Drummond doesn't seem to be getting much uh, interest beyond taking on his contract. Yeah, so I mean, okay, we can talk about this since we're, I've mentioned Drummond a couple times already. I wrote a piece for Razzball, uh last week about potential Detroit Pistons trades and looking at like their cap situation and the contracts that they have on the books, I think um, that Derrick Rose is the most tradable contract they have, the most tradable player. Yeah. First of all, he's playing really well this year. Um, he's only making $7 million this year and he's under contract uh, next year. There's no team option or anything like that, so you can, if you're like a, a team looking to, you think you'll be in the hunt next year, you will, you'll have a quality player next year. Um, and yeah, his then, per minute numbers have been really great. Um, there, there's also the suggestion that he really doesn't want to leave there. And the other piece is that the Pistons are sort of waffling on this rebuild. And there's the suggestion that they want to keep him for stability next year. Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of makes sense. Hopefully they're not waffling on the rebuild for both of your sakes as Pistons oh my, fans, yeah. but um, <laughs> I, I think it makes sense in once in one element in the fact that like, you know, if you're a rebuilding team, you're going to be losing a lot of games and you just don't want to use, lose them like in a noxious fashion, you know, you don't want to, sure. you don't want to stink up the entire place so bad. So if you have Derek Rose, he can give you some nightly entertainment to offset all the losing you're going to be doing. So, I mean, I think it makes sense from that standpoint, but. And it would really make sense with this sort of minute cap that he's doing right now, you know, where he, yeah. he if they're losing and he's just coming in for some fan entertainment and to just, you know, kind of in the tail end of his career, have some highlights. Um, it could be a pretty good situation. The one thing I want to say yeah. about, well, you, you said his... something important there too, Kyle, though. The fans in Detroit love him. When he yeah. comes on the court, they explode. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I think that that's a great idea for, for the Pistons. I do think that, you know, my take on Drummond right now is that the um, his numbers are so gaudy and some general manager somewhere um, and some owner somewhere probably as well Um really wants to bring him in and someone's going to be willing to give up some big asset for that. Um, somebody somewhere will. Uh, I still think that a trade gets done for Drummond and the Pistons will get back something substantial. It won't just be, you know, four other expiring contracts and some like, you know, middling piece. I think they'll get back something pretty good. Yeah, so and so let's go back to the article, uh, Jalen, in Razzball and and run through the other possibilities here. So there's Drummond, Rose. Um, who else looks likely? Um, I mentioned Galloway. I didn't really do any individual trades for Galloway. They were all like sort of he was aggregated or added to them with Derrick Rose. But uh, one was Galloway and Rose for Bamba and Terrence Ross from the Magic, which is like sort of like. 
the magic are unlikely to give up on Bamba this early and but it's like well if they if they do want to sell high to make the playoffs and go all in this is one way that they could do it uh the most interesting one the one that like someone shot down on Twitter was Rose for Bogdan Bogdanovich which makes sense like Bogdanovich is a better player he has more I would upside love it for Detroit <laughs> yeah he has more upside but like also what if he just uh the what the person said on Twitter was that like the the Kings would need to give up a first round pick, which might be true, but also are they going to get a first round pick if he just does everything in his power not to resign with them in restricted free agency? Um, you know, <laughs> right. like, so I mean, I don't know. Um, yeah. And Rose for DJ Augustin, um, Rose would also, I think look good on the Sixers. So I yeah, constructed definitely. a couple of deals there, Zaire Smith and Jonah Bolden, Markeith Morris, uh, Zaire Smith and Jonah Bolden going. Um, so yeah, so, uh, basically I think Rose is the best, he might be the best trade option in the entire league. I constructed a couple Drummond deals, but they're, they're all kind of sad. It's like Drummond to the Hawks, Drummond to the Hornets. And then these are ones that I didn't even really consider, consider Drummond to the Knicks, the Mavs, or the Suns. Now, literally after I wrote this, it came out that the Knicks were actually interested in Andre Drummond. And I like gave it very short shrift in my article because I was like, this makes no sense. They have Mitchell Robinson, but it's right. the Knicks. So, right. you know. <laughs> And that's a terrifying uh, yeah. trade for me uh, with my fantasy team because that would ruin uh, Mitchell Robinson's fantasy value as well as his real development value. With Unless the- they send him to the Pistons. <laughs> well, I would take that. But then would you know, the Knicks be that dumb? Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. Mitchell Robinson doesn't have his gaudy numbers. And like I said, somebody somewhere is going to see them and say, I want that. Um, well i hope uh as a trey young fan as a person who watches a lot of hawks games i hope it's not the the atlanta hawks owner who i don't even know who that is but like drummond doesn't really fit he's not as good of a rim runner as john collins uh he's obviously not a spacer he's not like a switch defender like he doesn't really fit the and the problem there i think is more with collins because collins at his size needs to be able to shoot the three um pretty well and he doesn't like if jaron jackson was on the hawks then drummond would make a lot more sense but uh, that's not the case. Um, right. And I think the the wildest trade that I came up with was a three-team trade between the Clippers, the Hornets, uh, and the Pistons. Um, and let's see. The Hornets would send out Kid Gilchrist, Marvin Williams, and Bismack Biombo. Uh Biombo and Gilchrist go to the Pistons. Williams goes to the Clippers. And the Hornets would receive Andre Drummond, Maurice Harkless, and Jerome Robinson. Uh, pretty crazy deal, but it makes sense because the Clippers get like a four man who can actually shoot since that's not Murray Sarkless's strong suit. Um, and then everybody else gets sort of expiring contracts or uh, actual players in the case of the, the Hornets if they want to go for the AC this season. Uh, so it kind of made sense. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I like that one. Um, the, I, since we're on the, the, the Pistons a bit here, um, and it's not fully the rebuild yet or the trades that they've made, I just want to mention that the Detroit Pistons have been great for my fantasy team in Scorekeeper. Uh, I was able to, uh, because of all of the injuries, I was able to pick up Seku, and I was able to pick up Christian Wood, and uh, I have very high hopes for both of them. Have either of you watched Seku much? Because... He is making Detroit Pistons basketball fun to watch for the first time in years. 
So I'm one not, of, I'm that, not, and I, I very much regret it. As soon as I get back from Rome, I'm going to be, <laughs> I'm going to be watching a lot of Seku. I will be putting the Pistons on any chance that I can get. Um, I right now as you know, a hometown fan. I have all the hope in the world. To me, he's he's Giannis. He's going to be Giannis in five years. Um, Siakam in three, Gian- Giannis in five. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's what's happening. <laughs> so, and so, but, so, just to talk a little about his game. He's, you know, the the kid is 19 years old. He's the youngest active player in the NBA. Um, already uh, a big, strong guy, 6'9", 230, uh, plays super intense defense. And one of the things I've loved watching, which has just made it fun, when the Pistons get a rebound or a turnover or anything approaching either of those two things, he releases and he is flying down the court. And they're finding him down the court. You see him do it repeatedly. It's one of the reasons his field goal percentage is so high. But besides just playing hard on both ends, uh, he can shoot the three, and he just looks like he's having a ton of fun out there. It's and it, it, it's fun in a way the Pistons just haven't been in a long, long time. Yeah, the Pistons are interesting because I feel like they do have a lot of tradable contracts, and they because they're in the middle of a rebuild, their young guys are getting more playing time. Uh, Makai look has, is shooting the ball really well this year. I think he's like above 40, 40%. Uh, he also gets steals, which is nice from a fantasy perspective. Christian Wood obviously is really good. And on the night, on a night when he plays, he's going to put up some numbers. Seku is looking great. Kennard was looking pretty good before he got injured. Derek Rose is looking great. Langston Galloway shooting the ball pretty well. He's also on like a nice contract at 7 million. Even Tony Snell shooting the ball well, I don't think he's really like a trade piece because he makes more than Langston Galloway, and I think Galloway's better, but you know, yeah, he's, he's okay. Yeah, I mean, Tony Snell, one of the few starting players in the NBA who isn't on a team and scorekeeper, which runs 220 deep. So, <laughs> you know, not highly thought of <laughs> by a lot of people. Um, yeah. But Casey has made a bunch of remarks that that uh, Seku, uh, Christian Wood, Bruce Bowen, Luke Kennard. This is the feature. This is the future. This is who we're featuring. This is who we're trying to develop. You know, this is the path we're on now. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, Bruce Brown can be the next Bruce Bowen. Uh, that that's not a. Oh, he, sorry. Did I say Bowen? <laughs> yeah, no. He's got he's got He'll more. Never leave my brain. I hate him so much. <laughs> Uh, but if we want to look at other trade candidates, I mean, in the rundown, we, you you know, you mentioned love, obviously, love to Portland basically will never die until it happens or he <laughs> retires. So that's a trade out there. I mean, there are large contracts on both sides to give up in Whiteside and love for the Cavs. So in theory, it could work. And, you know, the Portland could start preparing for next season, but they'd kind of have to punt on this year, probably. Right. So. And love wants out by all accounts. There, there's been plenty of that on social media lately. Yeah, there's definitely no hiding that. He's chucking all <laughs> at his teammates and yeah. walking around like he lost a puppy on the court or something. Uh, yeah, it's been it's been rough for poor Kevin. Um, another team, two other teams that I thought would make trades before we got to January: OKC and New Orleans. Um, you know, um, CP3, Gallo, Adam, Schroeder, I would have all considered 
at least possible trade candidates, they're the seven seed with a winning record. I'm not sure they're going anywhere. Um, same with uh, New Orleans. Um, Drew favors Redick. I'm not sure they're going anywhere either. I think they like what they have and want to see what they have when Zion gets back with favors healthy. Anything going to happen with either of those? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I wrote also that I thought let they were going to keep CP. His contract is just so big, even though he's playing really well. I don't think anyone will want to take it on with as many years left on it. Uh, but I think um, of the people that are maybe more likely to be traded, I thought Gallo would be one, but it seems like they might be interested in keeping him also. But um, Schroeder is probably the one most likely to get traded. Yeah. Um, I mean, he maybe he, he's basically playing the best defense of his life. He's shooting a three well uh, at or near like a career high on that as well. So it's possible that like he would regress next season. So maybe they'd want to avoid that. He's not he's I think he's making like 15 million or something like that. So he's not right. it's not insanely expensive. It's not super cheap anyways. Um, and I'm sure they're invested in in uh, developing Shea. So it's possible right. they could trade Schroeder. Um John Hollinger had a good trade that I thought was interesting uh, in part because of the way he explained it, that uh, the Thunder could send Schroeder to the Heat for Justice Winslow. Winslow has basically been injured the entire season. Um, But the the reason why I thought it made some sense, because on its face, that trade doesn't make sense for the Heat, but the Heat could then also trade Schroeder in a larger deal or, you know, for a bigger piece. And that's basically the only way in which I see it making sense, because... I mean, Goran Dragic is having a great offensive season himself, um, and maybe Schroeder is an upgrade defensively over him, but it doesn't really... It, that's a that's a lateral move to me if there's not an additional step to it. With the Heat playing so well, are you expecting any trades there? I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to gauge. I think that uh, there's been like a trend. Their defense has been on a uh, sort of downward spiral of late. Um, I think they're now officially like... They're nearing the bottom half of the league in terms of like their defensive rating and net rating and things like that. I think they're like 10th or 11th recently. Um, so they're, they're trending down in that direction. But uh, I don't know. To me, it doesn't really make sense unless it's like the right move. It doesn't really make sense to cash in the chips right. uh, for for like... I don't know. I don't even know if like Drew Holiday would be enough to really make them title contenders. You know, it feels like they need someone who's as good or better than Jimmy Butler on the wing or, you know, and I, I kind of feel like they might be better off just adding supplemental talent for their interior defense um, and maybe like a wing sized limited shot creator or something like that. So right. I'm kind of hoping they don't do anything. Cause I feel like it would be hard to pull off the sort of deal that would matter uh, right. in the playoffs, but who knows you can yeah. never count out Pat Riley. Yeah, um, you, could view it, you could view it as steps in a process. You know, you bring in Drew and it maybe doesn't get you there now, but it puts you on the map in free agency or, you know, I don't know how how flexible their payroll would be at that point, but, you know, it, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the end of their building. Yeah, but, yeah, that's it's, true. It's somewhat inflexible right now, right? Yeah, I mean, it's flexible in the sense that they have large contracts they can trade, but the problem is nobody wants those wants large them. contracts <laughs> yeah. because they're Dion Waiters and Kelly Olynyk and James Johnson, even though James Johnson has come back to life he's, in the past, in the past like, week or so. Yeah, he's looked pretty good lately. Yeah. So, I don't know. I mean, I think what I would say is uh, Marcus Morris is, like, m- another super tradable uh, person that the Knicks 
uh, seemingly don't want to trade. Uh, again, and seemingly that, he doesn't want to move for whatever reason. Yeah, well, I understand it from his standpoint because he's banking on the Nixian stupidity to just give him a massive contract next year <laughs> um, based on the, the slightly outlier performance of this season. Uh, but from their standpoint, it doesn't make sense. So, you know, they lucked into like one of the premier assets around this trade season. Like the Clippers could use him. The, the Lakers could use him. Any contending team could use him. He's shooting like 40 plus percent. I think he was he was 47% from three as recently as like a week or two ago. So um, huge, huge potential asset for contending teams. Uh, I think Alex Burks, Alec Burks and... Um, uh, not only D'Angelo Russell, but also Willie Cauley-Stein are like potential trade, trade candidates. Cauley-Stein maybe less so because I think he has a player option, so you have to do the whole dance with that. But Burks is having a really good season. He's on a favorable contract. Um, you know, he could help you if you need some bench scoring. And obviously D'Angelo Russell is like the big chip that everyone wants to know what's going to happen. Right. We're just waiting to see if that falls or not. Um, okay. Let's, uh, I want to uh, hit on one other thing before we move to our last big topic. And um, I'd like an update on Jarrett Culver, which I think uh, his prospects just improved with the Jeff Teague trade. Um, thoughts on that, Kyle? He's looked really good lately. His shooting seems to have improved, and they seem to have more confidence in him. I think it's one of the reasons this trade happened. I absolutely do. Yeah, I think that this trade signals that they're going to cut him loose. And, uh, you know, he's already – he almost didn't have a single night with, you know, a plus 500 shooting um, evening. And uh, I think his last, like, three or four have all been that way. And it's, you know, most of – um, most of the, his recent games, he's been shooting well. Uh, even his free throw shooting is up, which you know started off the season about as bad as anybody in history has ever started off free throw shooting. Um, I think he was in like the 30% area. Um, but, you know, before, before we move on, I had one other thing because I wanted to, you know, talking about the trade market, I wanted to take offense on behalf of Jazz fans a little. I, I mean, you know, I guess phrasing it as trade market, you know, given that the trade is already done may not apply, but, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of trade season, um, they made a trade and have rattled off 10 wins in a row now and moved themselves into um, third place in the West. Do we need to talk about Jordan Clarkson? Um, I don't know if we do, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I mean geez, do we like, need to talk about you the know, jazz? His scoring is good, and he's a piece they needed, especially with Conley not doing what they expected there. And I think he's still injured, if I'm remembering right. Um, so it, it, I think it's key in that way. I think it was a piece they absolutely needed, and it makes them a viable playoff contender in a way I thought they would be, but only just now are. Yeah, I mean... I feel like I'm happy to lean into uh, hating on the Jazz in only to upset Jazz fans because Jazz fans <laughs> are like the most aggrieved fan base or one of the most aggrieved fan base uh, right there next to the Rockets who are only two spots behind them in the standings. They're always unhappy about everything and they're always unhappy in this meta way. They're unhappy that their team doesn't get covered enough and it's just like, I don't know, move. Move somewhere where the weather is warmer and there's a larger media market. I don't know what to tell you. Or or just recognize that like as good as Rudy Gobert is, he 
isn't that much fun to watch, you know? So, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to lean into that, but I think the trade obviously worked out. Um, Jordan Clarkson and his compression socks are killing it so far. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if you all have seen that, but he looks like he's wearing old man compression socks. Uh, I, listen, as an old man, I'm telling you, compression socks are a wonder. They yeah. are amazing, <laughs> and I wear any compression gear whenever I'm trying to not get as old as I am. Um, I love it, <laughs> um, but I have to say this because it brings this up. He looks a little goofy, and I think it was Jordan Clarkson that just recently, in the last day or two, made a comment on social media about the players and their really great uh, shoes and outfits that are walking into the arenas. Mm-hmm. He was trashing that the whole thing. PJ Tucker, Russell Westbrook, anybody associated with it, <laughs> saying that they didn't care enough about the game. They were more worried oh. about being on Instagram. While he himself was making this public statement, which of course got him a lot of attention. So oh, no, no, no. I think that was JJ Redick that said that. Oh, it was JJ Redick? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Why did I have Clarks in there? So um, JJ Redick said that, and I I tweeted out. I was like, he might be right, but this seems like hilariously <laughs> on brand for JJ Redick to say this. Like, I don't know, man. Like. Yeah, it's pro- it's probably true that some people in the NBA care more about their Twitter their their Twitter following or their money or you know all the peripheral things in the NBA that aren't winning basketball games. But also, like I don't know, we're not only watching the games to see who wins and loses. Of course, uh, and yeah. doesn't JJ Reddick care too much about his hair to make that statement? <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's that's a fair argument. <laughs> And Gordon Hayward. I mean, right? I think if you just took like a, if you put like a time lapse camera on them, I think fifty percent of the time they'd be like pushing their hair back. <laughs> I'd love to see a supercut of those guys fixing their hair in game. Yeah. Um, <laughs> All so right. That's, that's what we got on the Jazz compression socks. <laughs> we covered them. We just covered them. That was a lot. Compression that's great. Socks that's great. Premises. Somebody tweet it at the Utah Jazz team. So, um, okay, we're moving on to our last big topic today. Uh, David Stern and his legacy. There are, um, as you may have read in the in the uh, follow-up to his death, a lot of nice things have been, been being said about David Stern. He gets credit for quite a lot, uh, quite often. One of them is the expansion of teams. Uh, from 23 when he took over to 30. Uh, also the expansion of the international game, which has contributed to some extent to the greatness of the NBA game today. That's how we get Doncic. That's how we get Embiid to some extent. You know, a whole host of other players. Um, he gets credit to some extent for his deal making and the TV contracts and the money where, you know, everybody got paid more than they had in the past. He gets credit for the TV, uh, for the games being on TV in real time rather than the tape delay that I grew up with. You guys didn't have to suffer through that. Um, And it was terrible. Uh, He also gets some credit for the NBA. And I think we should give him some credit for Adam Silver, who is a much more progressive leader than Stern was. Um, And so, so while he gets credit for a lot of those things, I think there are also a lot of issues there that were 
glossed over in a lot of recent coverage. Um, the, the treatment of women uh, in the NBA hasn't been great historically uh, and for in a lot of different ways. The WNBA, those those contracts were uh, not a lot of money early on, and all of those players were playing elsewhere where they made their real money. Not all, but most. Um, the uh, player code, uh, not the player code, the dress code for the players, um, in my view, a, a, a racist uh code that was put into play. I'm glad to see it's changed in the way it's dealt with today. So there are a whole lot of things to talk about here. Um, which one do you guys want to pick up first? Yeah, so I mean, I'll just say to center the conversation, I think uh, what we're responding to in part is a podcast uh, that Ethan Sherwood Strauss and Henry Abbott did on The Athletic, uh, talking about David Stern's legacy. And it was sort of buoyed or centered around two separate articles that they each wrote or they each wrote one article um abbott wrote an article titled exceptional ruthless david stern doesn't fit tidy eulogies um and i'll pull up the title for the strauss article in a second but uh essentially they all they each gave their own take uh on david stern's legacy and uh abbott's was uh, i think much more critical and much more focused on sort of the negative side of yeah uh, his legacy, whereas Ethan basically talked about getting to know someone post their sort of um, power-hungry, extremely powerful phase in their life. Uh, so, it, you know, it was it was much more cordial. It was much more like a mentorship and all these sorts of things. And they're both extremely well-written, great articles. Uh, but I feel like they brought up a lot of interesting questions that I wanted to get into because I feel like they all sort of tie into every conversation around the NBA right now. And I think a yeah. lot of the conversations around the NBA are about the ratings decline and why the ratings are declining. And everyone has like a million theories on why they're declining. Um, and I think some of Stern's legacy, uh, Ethan puts forth is that this decline is a result of some of the things Stern did, uh, namely uh, the, you know, internationalizing the game specifically moving into the Chinese market um, and and also choosing uh, where he uh, st strategically chose to put stadiums and teams uh, in the U.S. Uh, and essentially, Ethan's point is that he chose these minor league markets, essentially, these like baseball markets like Oklahoma City um, and other small markets. Uh, and I think and I think basically what I wanted to say is that I feel like David Stern's legacy uh, that I think people might be able to agree on outside of like all the things that he did to grow the game and give us what we now currently have is that he sort of took money from everyone um, and he he collected power wherever he could. Um, and in service of that collection of power, he made decisions that I think are ultimately hurting the league now uh, financially and, you know, maybe politically uh, in China. But I mean, I think um, there, there, there's an unbalance there yeah. because he's the, he's the commissioner. He's meant to grow the game. He's meant to, um, you know, increase the revenue at all costs, basically. So right. it's sort of the, the, it, at one point in the, 
in the podcast, Ethan asked, what was he supposed to do in response to Henry Abbott bringing up all these things that Stern did do, like cleaning up the reputations of the owners, whether it was Mikhail Prokhorov, Donald Sterling, Jerry Buss, um, and how many of these people were connected to um, prostitution, potentially sex trafficking, uh, con- connected to people like Jeffrey Epstein uh, and Harvey Weinstein and all these sorts of things. And and Ethan asked, what was David Stern supposed to do? And I feel like the answer to that question is not be the commissioner of the NBA. That's basically the only way <laughs> he could have avoided these sorts of things, I think, is in the same way that, like, how can you avoid calling in an airstrike as the president of the United States? You you don't become president because you understand that <laughs> right. you'll be put into these positions to make these sort of impossible moral decisions. Um, and right. so I think that was those were a couple of things that I took away from the podcast. Yeah, they talked about all of the compromises, big and small, that were made in making those deals. And one of the interesting things to me that I'd never fully thought through, um, and I can't remember if it was Strauss or Abbott referred to um, that set of owners and a few others as sort of the creep factor. There was a creep factor with some of these owners about a lot of their, you know, uh, what we're suggesting were um, – you know, illegal activity in, t- in places and just um, wretched activity on any sort of level in other instances. Um, one of the suggestions, I can't remember whether it was there in another article that I can't remember who wrote, but it was suggested that these owners, when he brought them in, there was sort of a wink-wink understanding that they were now voting with David Stern. And that was one of the ways he consolidated power, bringing in some somewhat undesirable, or not somewhat, undesirable types and using that to consolidate his power to grow the league the way he thought he should be doing that as a business person. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know, you know, is it a, is it a chicken or egg conversation? Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) You you need, you need billionaires uh, to fund the league to, to purchase these teams. So I don't, I don't know what the sort of aggregate morality of the billionaire class is, but I'm guessing it's not amazing. Um, so, you know, I don't know if it's chicken or egg, but it certainly seems like it, there is a possibility that Stern could have potentially like among this billionaire class could have been seeking out people who he could then control, uh, because, you know, how can you control billionaires? Essentially, uh, it's one way to like sort of, you know, find these things about them, clean their reputation up for the purposes of the public and the, and the growth of the league. But then, you know, behind closed doors, they're in your pocket, you know, they're providing these pocket votes and they're voting with David Stern on every league issue. And again, I think all of that may have been in service of the league growing, right? I think David Stern was genuinely interested in growing the league. uh, But the way in which he went about it, I think caused some problems. Um, And I think the owners... Yeah, sorry. Go ahead, Kyle. Yeah, yeah no, no. I'm, I'm sorry. It, it's, uh, it's been hard to, to figure out a good time to jump in here because you guys are, you guys <laughs> are, no, 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 no. I just mean in the sense that, like, um, you know, we're getting into some really big questions about what a commissioner does in sports and how they relate to owners and how they relate to the sport. And I thought that it's worthwhile to consider the history of commissioners in general because they really come from a very similar political period to what we're in right now. Um, you know, the the first sports commissioner 
I believe it comes in response to the Black Sox scandal yeah, in that's right. 1919 with um, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and this you know it's around the same time where so we're, we're you know it's a it's a um, a, a political period that's um, you know it's, it's coming after World War One, and uh, you also in the same era have the Red Scare, and um, and you have just business with kind of unfettered power, um, which of course then leads in the end of the twenties to, um, the famous stock market crash. And I just think that we, we, we are seeing a very similar thing right now where you're, you're saying, you know, the league can't function without billionaires, but it functioned with owners who were, you know, relatively powerful in terms of their, their wealth, um, relative to the rest of the population, but not to the same extent that they are now. I actually think that the the extent of, of disparity between the owners of, a, of an NBA franchise now and the rest of the, you know, the, the, the populace is much greater. I mean, you talk mm-hmm. about players who... Well, the um, value LeBron of the James are much, much bigger. Just, that, you know, that's exactly simple. It, you're talking yeah. about LeBron James potentially getting out of the league and having to wait a while and continue to, like, build up his wealth in order to own an NBA franchise. And uh, and anyway, the, 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 the point of, of my bringing this up is that so the MLB brings in its first commissioner to clean up a scandal so that the owners can just continue to make money, right? They didn't even need a commissioner in order for the league to function before that. They they functioned as a sort of trust. They all worked, you know, they, they probably had their owners meetings and that sufficed for, you know, in you know a sort of democratic way, potentially, um, sufficed for governance of the league. And you know, I, I compare it in a lot of ways to what happened in the movie industry because they similarly um, didn't have a commissioner or they didn't have, um, you know, an industry leader um, until they had a number of scandals in the, the late teens and early 1920s that then they brought in Postmaster General Will Hayes um, and then put together a code for how to make movies, right? And so commissioners were always brought in in general to serve the interests of the owners and we've yes. only started to think of them as having a ton of power kind of on their own afterward and that's actually what's so remarkable about david stern in a way was that he was able to get some kind of power independent of some very very powerful owners i mean you can hardly ma- imagine that a similar thing happening in the nfl um you know with owners like um, you know, Robert Kraft and, um, and, uh, um, Cowboys owner, Jerry, J- Jones. Jerry Jones. Yeah. Jerry Jones. Yeah. I had first name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's what we're saying is that I think that like David Stern's legacy is sort of amassing power amongst these extremely powerful people. And I don't know how many ways you can go about doing that, but it seems like some of the ways he went about doing that were like, you know, the sale of the team uh, and moving the team to Oklahoma City, selling it to their owner instead of uh, Steve Ballmer led group, which I think was 
more ready to purchase the team, which is better funded, right? Um, right? And then the Oklahoma City owner is now in David Stern's pocket, now votes every which way with David Stern. Donald Sterling voted every which way with David Stern. Donald Sterling was only removed after David Stern uh, was no longer commissioner. So the ways in which he went about amassing power, I think, are interesting or, you know, not interesting, something more perverse, but like uh, they led to like some of the owners we got, some of the creepiness, as you described, uh, these people who have these very uh, nefarious associations. Um, and and yeah, I think that all well, that's actually like power grabs. Well, that was that was the reason why I found it. it you know, it's the comparison to the NFL that is so interesting to me, because obviously, <clears throat> you know, I hold the same sort of ambivalence toward David Stern and for s- some even more personal reasons with how I felt the game was conducted on the court with the officiating, et cetera. But what I was able to appreciate in his era was how different a league it was compared to particularly um, baseball and football, um, but just because those have such a larger cultural imprint, because hockey is, of course, no less conservative. Um, I thought that the the NBA under um, David Stern did have a it, – it gave players some opportunity for – their own expression in a way that I feel like the, the NFL doesn't, I wouldn't quite say, I wouldn't say it gave the players the ability for that expression in the, because we have to talk about the dress code that was instituted, which was a move to very much take that away from players. One thing I like about the dress code is that today I hated it then, um, for its implicit racism uh, at the time. Today, the players have changed that. They've, the, the code exists, but the players have taken, embraced that in a new way that has given them agency and has given them profiles um, that they wouldn't have otherwise. So the players did that. Donald Stern tried to stop that. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a, yeah, I mean, I think that's a fair point. Like I think inherent to basketball maybe, uh, or like the, the people who play basketball, right. Basketball is typically basketball worldwide is I think the second most popular sport behind soccer, uh, baseball in this country. Baseball is basically only in countries where the U S you know, exercise their Imperial power, um, here, you know, um, in Japan and other places. Um, and, and like, yeah, I mean, I think baseball is predominantly white as you're saying. Um, so I think some of that expression, the way baseball is played in this country is not expressive. It's not the way basketball is played in this country. And I think that that is the case from a grassroots level. And I think the NFL is, you could argue is played that way, but has been so, um, strategic and active in controlling that for so long right. that I think it's fair to point out that for the most part, David Stern didn't do that exactly. You know, he didn't, <laughs> right. he didn't, right. he didn't like find players for celebrating on the court at every single turn. <laughs> um, right. But, but that was that was the point that I wa- that I wanted to get to. Um, you know, but, in but, the back but of I, my mind was that was that fact. You know, 
the the NFL polices its players yeah. at every turn, yeah. and and the NBA did not do that. And I do think it's that one of the things that makes it fun today is they don't do that, and there is all of that expression. And, there, and one of the and I know that that you know David Stern did you know he ruled with a heavy hand. But I wonder if the owners would have ruled in a sort of heavier cultural hand than even he did if ah, they were oh, to have sure. this, this is I'm what sure they this would is have. this was yeah. the point that I was trying to make is I think that, you know, the way that the NFL is run is is not just, you know, your um, Tagliabue's and and um, and, you know, Goodell's. It's also just the power of the owners. And I think that I think the the commissioners are, are very much in a way selected by a very, you know, culturally, politically conservative group of owners as like the people who will do their interests. So it was really and do their bidding, you know. And so it was really interesting to have someone like Stern who you know, through certain, you know, nefarious mechanisms and propping up some very unsavory characters was able to do some things that were not entirely against the interests of the league, the players in it, and, you know, um, more progressive fans is it, it, I just have a very, it's a complicated relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I think that's so true because the other side of that power meant that like David Stern could now push through measures which he thinks are more in line with the spirit of the game and growing the game. And now these owners who he has the dirt on have to vote alongside him, even if they otherwise wouldn't, you know, in any other scenario. So that's like the other side of that power. And I know we're running out of time, but like, I guess the last thing I wanted to say uh, was that your description, Kyle, of like the role of a commissioner is exactly what David Stern did also. I mean, uh, as we said, the NBA was on tape delay when he took over. Um, It was viewed as a sport of thugs. You know, there was the malice at the palace and just like all this fighting, not to mention that hockey has legalized fighting, but obviously there's, (laughs) there's racial implications here. You know, it's a predominantly black sport and they're fighting. So this is bad and we have to stop this. And so that I think was obviously a part of David Stern's, job was to like keep the league alive and he went about doing that in any number of ways from like probably messing up an fbi investigation into <laughs> yep. uh, donahy uh <laughs> and a cheating scandal like um there's a new york times article about it henry abbott yeah, mentions it that essentially like uh the investigators told stern that they were going to get the referees to wear a wire and they were hoping to implicate other referees in the donahy scandal and all of a sudden um, the information was leaked to the media, um, therefore, like putting a stop to the investigation. Um, so, I mean, there are all these things that Stern did, I think, to keep the league alive. Um, and obviously, us diehard fans of the league in some ways have to be thankful for that because, yeah, you know, one has to wonder in this country, like, would would the NBA, the NBA, a predominantly black sport that had this reputation, obviously a false reputation, but had this reputation of being a league of thugs and all this fighting and this dress code and like this complete desire to eradicate hip hop culture in in the mass media around the NBA, which is where the dress code comes from, would it still be alive if Stern didn't do these nefarious things? Um, so it, it's very interesting. Yeah. And one of the one of the things I wanted to bring up, too, before we go, I have a few other uh, last points. Jump in on these wherever you'd like. Um, some of the things he gets credit for, the expansion of teams, the internationalization of the game. Um, 
the TV contracts and the money associated with them. Wouldn't any commissioner have done that, had tried to do that? He did it. It happened. But wouldn't any commissioner have tried to do exactly those things? Interesting question because, uh, <laughs> you know, well, in part because you would think that other sports leagues would be wanting to try this, to do the same thing and they've been less effective and we don't know what the reasons are for that. Sure. Baseball is a difficult sport to, to travel because you need a big space to do it. And, um, you know, basketball is relatively easily um, transportable because you don't need a lot, you know, there's not much of a startup cost to put a basketball court somewhere. Okay, I'm just going to jump ahead to a couple other points I want to hit before we leave the stern conversation. And one is that as, as, as obviously sexist and wretched as the early money was in the WNBA, they have new contracts today with 50-50 revenue sharing, which is a big step in the right direction for the WNBA. It doubles and triples many player salaries from what they are right now. And I can't, I don't even know what the uh, multiplier would be from what they were uh, earning, you know, two decades ago. Um, but just it is a step in a nice direction. Direction. And I also need to mention uh, in relation to the dress code, there's an interesting question here around, and you guys weren't around for this, but the red and black Air Jordan 1s that were so controversial back in the day, people died for those shoes. Um, and Jordan was not banned from wearing them. He was fined $5,000. Uh, dollars a game for wearing them and knowing all of the deals that Stern made and that he loved to do this. Do you think that was an implicit deal made between Jordan, Nike and Stern somehow? It was great publicity. Yeah. I mean, I don't know of a deal, but I mean, obviously I, I don't know those exact, exact specifics in great detail, uh, but I know what you're talking about. And I mean, I think you could probably argue that like, I don't know, not like sort of putting a halt on that uh, around that time. The fact that considering that people were dying for these shoes, you know, sort of continuing yeah. to, to market them. And, and you know, Nike's model is a scarcity model. Like, obviously, this is Nike's model yeah. is what is what all what people who say the this is what the NBA needs to do, who champion the scarcity model in terms of like, I think limiting the number of games played is good. And they point to and the NFL as having a scarcity model and that helping the ratings. Um, but like, I mean, I think the scarcity model works in part in the NFL because the sport is extremely violent and can't be played on a, a more frequent basis. And that violence is also part of why the viewing public is so attracted to it, in my opinion. Um, but yeah, Nike's model is a scarcity model and that leads to these like massive lines and these like yeah. chaos for these shoes essentially. And I think, for the most part, Michael Jordan has pretty much been pretty mum about that sort of stuff. Yep. Um, so, I mean, I think you would have to implicate everyone involved in that sort of thing, you know? Right. So um, I, th we're, we're nearing our time limit today. So I just want to uh, I'm going to tease a couple of things. Uh, I'm well, hopeful no, that we're. Oh, go no, ahead. Do you have more? Yeah. Sorry. I just want to ask because. I don't know. Again, I'm trying to connect this conversation about David Stern and his business decisions as well as sort of the moral implications of all of his decisions to like the current ratings. Um, and like uh, in the in that podcast, they talk about like Stern. There was a peak in the 90s around Jordan uh, for the league and popularity. Then there was a post Jordan Nadir uh, right. and then a climb up that didn't uh, 
equate to that 90s popularity and now the league is much less popular than say uh, the NFL and I'm just sort of have the question of like what do people who are are sort of championing the fact that the ratings are down which they are there's no disputing that but like what do these people have as solutions to this problem and what do they pose as reasons for this I think everyone has their reasons but I kind of come away thinking like what could David Stern or anyone else have done uh, to make you know, a certain subsection of the U.S. population, you know, the people who don't like player empowerment, the people who don't like the uh, the pro- proliferation of uh, black culture in the larger um, media and all these sorts of things in, in the game itself. What could David Stern or anyone else do to get these people to enjoy the game and watch the game? I, I mean, is there anything? It's the sort of question, um, you know, I assume in a way there isn't anything that's going to appeal to those people. I don't know how to overcome those, what I would see as prejudicial assumptions they have. Um, is anything possible? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It just well, it just feels it, like what people are asking for is a ratings increase, and they want the league to facilitate the ratings increase. And I think you can implicate ESPN and some of their coverage and all those sorts of things. But what they want is for people who don't seem to actually like the game right. or or just everything surrounding the game. Because I think there's this move in on the internet, on Twitter at least, to like um, shame people for liking everything but the game, which is like, who cares? Yeah. Let people like what they want to like about the NBA. There's enough entry points for anyone but if you don't like any of those entry points how how are you going to be the person that ups the ratings <laughs> right right it's and, yeah i don't think that changes it and i think you bring up a great point i mean the nb and i think it was michael lee had a great article at the athletic about this a while ago suggesting that the nba exactly what you said the nba is um uh you know trying to get attention for all sorts of other things that aren't necessarily the game. And Michael Lee's suggestion is, this game is great. These players are amazing. We should be marketing the game. So I get both sides, but as you guys know, I love the courts. I love the shoes. I love the jerseys. I love the weird stories about Jarrett Culver and eggs and, you know, whatever it is. I love all of it. Um, And I think there's a lot to love here. I think if there is some hope for the NBA in this, it's that maybe Adam Silver is the best thing David Stern ever did. Much more progressive. The the WNBA uh, has gotten better under his rule. Um, other things have gotten better. There are now mental health initiatives, um, the, uh, you know, a whole host of other things like that. So I'm hopeful that Adam Silver is maybe seeing something that we're not yet seeing and that the league develops that way. I'm interested in two cities having NBA teams. And it's an interesting question for me because big markets don't necessarily lead to um, viewership, you know, um, the San Antonio is a relatively small market and they have great viewership. Part of that has to do with the team winning a lot. Um, Oklahoma City, same thing. But also, again, the team has won a lot. So who knows? But I think that Seattle needs a team again. They always loved the Sonics. Um, And I've always thought I've always wondered why St. Louis didn't have a team. They did at one point, right? Yeah, a couple different points, I think. And that that's a big enough market where I understand it's in the middle of the country. But what about us, Kyle? What about us? We live in Baltimore. 
Well, I mean, it's our team back. It's true. It's true. I mean, we do have the the Wizards and you know the, the Sixers. But but it's true. I mean, like Baltimore is a is a large population hub, and I think that that you know it's large enough that it's not like there are going to be too many teams in the Washington, Baltimore, Philadelphia corridor. I will buy season tickets for the Baltimore whatevers. Yeah, I mean MLB does it. You know, Phillies, Orioles, Nationals. Yeah, yeah. Um, Okay, I think that is our time for week 13. We will be back with hopefully some conspiracy theories and David Stern as well as a whole new set of subjects we're going to get into on basketball and aesthetics. So come back to us in the following weeks. We are turning off the phantom power. Ciao.